Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Transatlanticist at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I am your host, Andrew Sola. This podcast is called The Transatlanticist because we feature very special guests whom we call transatlanticists. These are people who represent the diversity of the transatlantic relationship in a number of different ways at a variety of different levels. In our first season, we will host experts from many different disciplines. They will help us explore the current political situation as well as the history of transatlantic relations but we will explore a wide range of topics that affect both Europe and the U.S., including culture and the arts, war and peace, economics and entrepreneurship. And let's not forget immigration, the environment, sports, women's issues, gender, and race. The transatlantic relationship is unique because of its diversity, and this podcast highlights its many different faces. Today, I'm very happy to welcome our very first transatlanticist, Dr. Jackson Janes. Dr. Janes is one of the few single human beings who, one might say, embodies the transatlantic relationship. In fact, he has devoted his entire adult life to it. He was director of the German-American Institute in Tübingen from 1977 to 1979, and then the director of the European office of the German Marshall Fund of the United States in Bonn from 1980 to 1985. He chaired the German Speaking Areas in Europe program at the Foreign Service Institute in Washington, D.C. from 1999 to 2000, and was the president of the International Association for the Study of German Politics from 2005 to 2010. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the U.S. Atlantic Council. He is currently the president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Dr. Janes. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. You are joining us at the America Centrum today to discuss President Donald Trump's first year in office, specifically his effect on the transatlantic relationship. However, before we discuss Trump, can we maybe go back in time and think about how previous presidents changed the transatlantic relationship in their first year? In fact, how much power does a president have to affect the transatlantic relationship? How does a president actually go about doing that? We can go back as far as you would like. Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, Reagan, or Carter, who was president when you were at the German-American Institute in Tübingen. I think that a president of the United States, because of the asymmetric relationship between Germany and the United States, is always a huge factor in the perception of the United States and Germany. We can see that, of course, for both good reasons and sometimes for bad reasons, in the sense that some people look across the Atlantic from Germany and don't like what they see, like today with Donald Trump. 
And sometimes they look across the Atlantic and see what they most likely would like to see, even if it isn't quite exactly the way the reality depicts it. And that would have been, of course, with Obama. I think there's the other way is simply policies. Personality makes a difference. Policy makes a difference, too. And what is going on over these last 30 or 40 years or so is an example of that. The policy of the United States toward Germany in the years uh, that you just mentioned, going all the way back to Carter, and maybe even before that, up until 1990, was that Germany was an object of American foreign policy. We had a stake here. We had thousands of people here, most of some of which were soldiers and some of which were families, because Germany was the front line of the Cold War. When that was over in 1990-91, the relationship began to change. And for the same reasons, policy and personality played a role. Clinton was very popular. George W. Bush was not. Obama was exceedingly popular. And you know what the situation with Trump is now. So I think that it varies tremendously with the personality of the president. But on the whole, the policies have somewhat remained the same, except for the fact that we're still struggling with a bit about, I would say, I would call it the post-Cold War era. And I don't think we're through that yet. Thank you. This takes me to a question about some of the principles that underline the transatlantic relationship. So many experts argue that there are three pillars that underpin the transatlantic relationship. Economics, we still have an economic relationship. Security, we still have a security relationship. But the third pillar was values or shared values. Some have suggested that Trump has shown that the values pillar is not as important anymore. What do you make of this third pillar of the transatlantic relationship, the values pillar? What values are we actually discussing here? And how do we see the administration addressing this issue of shared values, if at all? Well, we've always had differences in values in some ways because of domestic politics. Uh, what's the poster child for that? Guns. Mm. Um, so there's always been a difference in the way people perceive things that are different in Germany, like uh, free speech or the gun uh, control issue. Um, on the other hand, I think that the values that we're probably confronting now is the value of multinationalism, international interdependence, the sense of the fact that we have a stake in a common worldview. That is in question right now because of the way that Trump has begun his administration with this inauguration speech, which was very different from all of his predecessors, and the way that his America first ideas have been pronounced. I think that goes against the grain of Germans who believe that there is uh, uh, not a good idea attached to unilateralism, but multilateralism is the DNA of the German Republic ever since really 1949. So I think that we've got that problem. The domestic issues that we differ on are not going to change. We just have a different history. But I think that the values that are in question here are what, are, what stake do we have commonly shared in the world as we know it and how we want to shape it. And that's, at this point, a, an interesting dialogue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
going to uh, differences in values, if we could just take a step back and maybe explain to the German audience, Trump supporters, and indeed the America First ideology. Many Trump supporters find the America First ideology to be compelling. Indeed, many Trump supporters seem to be mistrustful of our relationship to the rest of the world. They do not like our financial commitments abroad, as well as our diplomatic engagements. For example, I don't think many Trump supporters are that concerned by the cuts to the State Department. They also often say that European nations do not do their fair share in defense, which was something that Trump bought up in the campaign. Of course, isolationist tendencies have existed in the American people for centuries, so this is nothing new. I've always thought it's important for our own politicians to make a clear case to the American people that global engagement is necessary. So how would we make a very simple and clear case to a farmer in Iowa or a factory worker in Michigan that the transatlantic relationship is worth investing in? And I'm not suggesting that we tell people how we should shape that relationship. My question is rather how can we convince people who don't think the transatlantic relationship matters to them, that it actually does. Well, I think your two examples are good ones. The um, American farmer in Iowa knows full well that exporting his product or his uh, produce is something that's good for his business. And having a relationship with a market that's 500 million strong in Europe at the EU level is a good market to be aware of. So I think that that's the kind of thing where you can get into a discussion with a farmer in Iowa about whether or not, A, there is a fair exchange trade-wise, and to some extent that's always open to contention. But at the same time, an open market is only in the benefit of someone who's producing a lot of whatever he's producing in Iowa. Uh, you can see that, by the way, with farmers that deal with China. And so with Europe, it's also a big business. I think if you picked someone like a at a worker, a manufacturing worker in, for example, the state of South Carolina or North Carolina, you might find that person's working for BMW, in which case there may be a clear example of how an investment of a German company in the United States is something that contributes to his well-being and perhaps vice versa in terms of producing good quality products. So I think it depends on the old expression, where you stand is where you sit. There are people that are going to feel that they don't have the same, uh, you know, gain or win uh, from these relationships with other countries trade-wise. Some people feel they've they've had a problem because of dumping like Chinese steel. But I think on the whole that most Americans I know, and I think that polls under under underline that, are in favor of free trade. What Trump has done is to say, is it fair to us? And do we have to renew or rethink those trade relations? They may be an illegitimate set of questions, but it, not something that would lead someone to say uh, trade should be basically um, uh, walled off. We don't want to do that. It's more a question of whether or not it's got a synergistic relationship. Thank you. You mentioned American polls, and maybe I can bring up some German polls. Some recent polls by Gallup, Pew, and the Kerber Stiftung indicate growing strains in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Germany at the level of the electorate or the voting public. 
According to the Kerber Stiftung report, 56% of Germans believe that the current state of the the bilateral relationship is bad or very bad. Regarding security matters, 88% of Germans think that in the future, the security relationship with Europe should have priority over that of the U.S., a recent Pew poll indicated that 87% excuse me, 87% of Germans have low confidence that Trump is doing the right thing regarding world affairs. What do you make of these polls? Do you see any historical similarities or differences between this type of anti-Americanism that's been growing now and, say, what was common during the Iraq War or any other event in the bilateral relationship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, we've been here before. Um, going back to, let's say, pick a year in 1982, that was a year of what we call the double-track decision. It was a year of confrontation with the Soviet Union at the time. The, the country of Germany, West Germany, was split over that issue of deployment of U.S. missiles to ostensibly protect Germany, but many felt it made Germany the theater of nuclear war. I think that this is something that has been a part of the relationship, which has been, as I said before, asymmetric. The United States' role in Germany is, is has always been very, very large. And so I think that to some extent the uh, polls that you cited on the German side are perhaps better put as anti-Trumpism because there was anti-Reaganism, there was anti uh, George Bushism. <laughs> uh, there's a difference in terms of looking at whether it's anti-American or whether it's anti-president personality. Um, at the same time, I think that the question comes up with regard to what's the replacement model here? If the uh, Germans who don't like what a president is doing, particularly in defense or security, where's the replacement? What's the alternative? And that is a question that I think Europeans and Germans have to constantly ask themselves, even when they have legitimate questions that can be directed toward Washington. Mm -hmm. Speaking of security and defense, uh, during the campaign, Trump indicated that the U.S. commitment to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, that an attack on one is an attack on all, would be contingent on countries spending 2% of their GDP on defense. This certainly worried some NATO allies. Since then, many U.S. officials have tried to confirm the U.S. commitment to Article 5 and NATO as a whole, and I think maybe that situation has improved. But do you think in your discussions and in your prep for the Munich Security Conference that NATO allies have been reassured? And what do you think will happen to the NATO alliance as a result of Trump's first year, if anything? Well, I think it depends on the perception of threat. If the individual members of NATO are completely uh, on one page when it comes to their perception of a common threat, then the alliance will remain intact. It's when you get into a fractured perception of what constitutes threat. We can disagree on the means to dealing with threats. We can deal with with differences over prescriptions for dealing with a a problem. But I think that the basic principle here is um, the U.S., has always carried the larger burden of NATO. There's no question about that. The question is, what is the European side of that contribution supposed to look like? Can it be only measured by 2% in terms of funding? Can it be measured by other things, uh, like developmental aid or supplementary aid for other projects under NATO's umbrella? I think we have to kind of step back and not get too fixated on whether somebody's anting up a certain amount of dollars and look at more 
consequentially, what are the threats that we're dealing with and how do we be able to combine forces? I don't think that the alliance was based on a zero-sum game, nor should it be today. As we talk about the United NATO perspective, uh, at the upcoming uh, Munich Security Conference, do you see any chance for coordinated action plans for Russia, North Korea, or, say, the problems between Turkey and the Kurds? Well, certainly on the case of North Korea, I think the Europeans have less to uh, contribute at this point. That's more a game. A game. It's more a strategy with regarding China and, and the areas of the East Asian theater. Um, and we carry a lot of weight there, the Europeans less so. I think that on the, uh, on the Turkish uh, Kurd thing, I think the Germans and the Europeans can help if they can figure out a way to prevent violence or perhaps to engage there with European presence that cuts down on the possibility of, of, of a shooting war. It's not clear to me how that's going to happen when all of the 28 members of the EU are not unified as to what that should look like. And the same thing holds true with Russia. There are basically sanctions in place now that the EU and the U.S. have imposed on Russia because of the Crimea invasion and annexation. I think that, and Ukraine, of course, continuing to be a boiling pot. It seems to me that the problem with dealing with those issues as an alliance but also as a U.S.-EU relationship, have to be cleared out on the European side. In other words, there are a number of countries in the EU who think that the sanctions are maybe now over overused and, and there should be some other way to deal with the Russia uh, incursion. So I think it's going to require, again, as I said before, a better understanding of what it is that we're up against and how we can combine forces to deal with it. Okay. Um, uh, let's let's quickly turn to German politics, and then I have one final question. Um, some commentators have suggested that a grand coalition government in Germany will weaken the transatlantic relationship because such a coalition would weaken Chancellor Merkel. Um, first of all, do you think the SPD members will approve of this coalition government, and what do you think the effect might be on the transatlantic? Atlantic relationship? Well, I think that the, the, the first question is, will the SPD pull together their own constituencies and let them support a grand coalition with Merkel? I think that's probably going to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an easy ride, and I'm not sure it's going to last all four years. But I think that it's probably going to happen because the division uh, over uh, being outside of government and inside of government is probably going to lean more toward SPD members saying, well, we might as well put our hand on the straw in the steering wheel as opposed to staying on the outside. Um, whether that is going to impact the um, uh, relationships with the United States depends not only on Germany, but it depends on its relationship, Germany's relationship with other countries, specifically France. And I think that in light of Brexit and in light of uh, other issues that are centrifugal forces pulling at Europe's fabric, the German-French relationship is going to be extremely important to look at with regard to not only their own capacity to deal with European issues, but also with the United States. You have a new leader in Paris. You have a veteran leader in, in France. I think they both have to figure out what they can do together to keep an intact European um, approach to dealing with threats and with opportunities, 
but also in dealing with the, with, the, with the United States under the leadership of President Trump. That is something that I think um, both sides of that equation, on both sides of the Rhine, agree on. The question is, Germany has put together a government to start that process. Thank you. And one final question, please. Are there any important issues that are not getting enough attention in policy circles that you think ought to be raised? What might those well, be? I think on the transatlantic circuit, the problem with that is that there are some issues that are not taken seriously on the U.S. side, like climate change. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that the U.S. government, not the U.S. society and certainly not a lot of people in Congress, don't feel that that is an issue that's worth looking at. That was not in the national security statement that the Trump administration made a few weeks ago. I find that very uh, disturbing. That's in one issue uh, certainly that will be, I think, important. The other, I think, um, are things like Africa. How do we deal with a continent that's going to explode demographically, has all kinds of fires burning in it uh, uh, around that large continent? How can we put together a coherent policy that helps contain or at least uh, deal with some of these challenges that Africa is posing, not only to Europe, but also to the world. And of course, you know, uh, another regional issue is the Middle East. Um, I think there again, Europe has to come together on its own to deal with the question of what we have as a common stake. Um, so I think in general that you know, we have to think German-American relations as fitted into a number of concentric circles in which both uh, countries and therefore the relationship play a, can play a major role. Um, how we get there, of course, remains to be seen. That depends on political leadership. Dr. Jaynes, it was fascinating talking to you. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you very much for your time. It was a delight My having pleasure. you.